So we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 5 today. And uh, what's interesting is that we did this series uh, several years ago. Actually, go back. There we go. Uh, We did this series uh, a few years ago in the main service, about seven years ago. And I did Daniel 5 in the main service during that series. And I had this weird idea. Mark Rojas, he's our worship pastor up there on the main stage. And he's an amazing drawer. He loves to draw. And and so I'd seen some of his drawings. And I said, hey, can you do me a favor? This is a long chapter. Can you, like, draw out some pictures that depict the scenes as it unfolds in Daniel chapter 5? And he said, yeah. He was all excited at first. And then once he realized how much hard work that was going to require, by the end, he said, please don't ever ask me to do this ever again, okay? And so I've only asked him to do it one time, and so I thought, I'm doing Daniel 5 today, that I would make use of his drawings in this sermon, because he worked so hard on those, and it felt like a waste to just use them one time. So this is a, a second time I can use this. He actually hand-drew that, the writings on the wall, and that's the title of today's sermon. And uh, there is a 23-year gap between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, and Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for a long time. And you know how sometimes Bible stories will become part of our everyday language? So if I were to say there is a, a football game taking place, and if I said to you, it's like David versus Goliath, like you would know what that means. You would know there's like a heavy favorite in the, in the football game, and there's a heavy underdog in that, in that game. You would know that by the statement, it's David versus Goliath. Even unbelievers know what those kinds of phrases mean. So today's story is kind of like that because we use the phrase, or some use the phrase, the writings on the wall all the time. You guys may not use that phrase, but older people use that phrase. And here's what they mean by it. It comes from Daniel chapter 5. One time I was hearing uh, to this, I I heard this uh, guy talking on the radio talking about this football recruit who was going to transfer from OU to A&M. Where are the Aggies at in the room? I didn't hear any whoops. Not that I wanted to hear a whoop, but that was pretty weak. I don't, I don't, y'all are like two percenters in here. That's what y'all are. So I don't know, man. He's even wearing the shirt over here in the front row. So yeah. <laughs> oh, you can't whoop until you're a senior. I didn't know that. I'm the two percenter. I'm the no percenter because I didn't go there. So um, I did not know these things. I didn't know these things. So, um, so this recruit was going to transfer from OU to A&M, and the question is why? Well, they, you see, OU had recruited a better player at his position, and the guy on the radio said he saw the writing on the wall, and so he transferred over to A&M. So what do people mean when they say this statement? Well, it's, basically what they mean is it's, it's a glimpse of the future, and it's not good. It's not positive. It's like a bad omen, right? So there's this new king in Babylon named Belshazzar, and God gives him this glimpse of the future, what the future will look like for him. Before we get to the story, though, in Daniel 5, there's some interesting background showing how we can trust the Bible. And uh, a few years ago, I read this article that had this weird title, and I was confused by it. And the article was titled, Christianity, the World's Most Falsifiable Religion. And at first, I thought it was like a negative article, like you can prove Christianity is false. But he actually meant the opposite. He said, 
He goes on to say in the article, the central claims of the Bible demand historic inquiry as they are based on public events that can be historically verified. In contrast, the central claims of all other religions cannot be historically tested and therefore are beyond falsifiability, yes, that's a word, or inquiry. They just have to be believed with blind faith. Okay, so what is he talking about when he says all that? Well, he's saying this, that a lot of the world's religions, like you say, Buddhism, Hinduism, even Islam, they don't really make these big historical claims. If you talk to someone about Hinduism, they don't even really know where it began or how it began. It's more like a philosophy, a way of looking at life. The same would be true for Buddhism. They have some spiritual writings, and there are some historical people that are connected to those religions, but there's not just like one body authoritative knowledge like we have with the Bible where they say, this is our authoritative book, and it's, it's the only thing we have that's authoritative. Now, you would say the Quran, of course, is that for Islam. But Islam is still based on, mostly on, the experience, the supposed experience of one person, Muhammad. And that's pretty much it. And everyone is following after his teachings. And, and so you really have this, when you look at other world religions, it's very limited as far as the historical claims that they even make. And so you're really having to say, I guess I just have to take their word for it, whatever it is they believe or put their faith and trust in. So his point with Christianity is that there's a lot of claims made by, the Christ, by Christians in the Christian faith um, where we, we, we believe that God revealed himself in some very physical ways through miracles and, and things like that when he was revealing himself through the people of Israel, leading a whole nation of people out of slavery in Egypt. That can be proven archaeologically. And so there's all these different claims made in the Christian faith that can really be proven false or be proven true. And whenever the Bible is held up to that standard, it seems to come through and be proven as a document that we can trust. So he's saying the Bible can be historically tested because it contains real events with real people, and other religions just don't really make those kinds of claims. So when we go from, for a long time, for many years, scholars would use Daniel chapter 5, to say that the Bible is not accurate. And here's why they would do that. Because when you go from Daniel chapter 4 to Daniel chapter 5, there seems to be a big problem. And here's the big problem. Daniel 5, 2 refers to Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. And there's no historical evidence that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father. So scholars would say, skeptics would say, you see, you can't trust the Bible because it's... It, this is not accurate historically. So here's the one way that, that some have addressed this. In, in the word, in Aramaic, which is what part of Daniel was written in, the word father can actually mean just ancestor or predecessor. So that's one way that some will handle that discrepancy. But also, there was this other problem because there was no historical evidence that there was ever a king in Babylon named Belshazzar. And so scholars would say, well, you see, you can't trust the Bible because it, we, can't, we know this isn't true. There was never a Belshazzar as a king of Babylon. And for years, scholars would use this passage, Daniel 5, to say the Bible can't be trusted. Because this is what the record showed archaeologically. They would say that after Nebuchadnezzar, these were the kings that came with Babylon. And you don't see Belshazzar's name up there as a king. 
It says, father of Belshazzar, Nabonidus. But up to that point, we did not think of him as being a king in Babylon ever. Because after these, this last king, uh, that's when the, the, the Medes and the Persians took over. That was the, how the thinking went. So after this last guy, Nabonidus, the Medes and Persians ruled, and, and Belshazzar was never understood to be a king of Babylon until 1853. In 1853, there was a guy named John Taylor who discovered these Babylonian cylinders. And on these cylinders, they discovered writing that we learn about Belshazzar. And he was the son of Nabonidus, and it says that while Nabonidus was away in a distant place for 10 years, that he left his son Belshazzar in charge. And we learned this only in the 1800s. So for many years, people would say, you see, you can't trust the scriptures because this doesn't add up historically. And then we would discover things like this that would actually confirm the scriptures and what Daniel 5 has to say. And so once again, the Bible passes the test. And so in Daniel chapter 5, look there in your Bibles. We'll start in verses 1 through 4 where it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank, drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is the first of Mark's amazing hand drawings. Uh, so the king throws this drunken party. So here's the scene. There's a king. He's going to get drunk in front of a thousand of his leaders. And just imagine, like you guys are throwing graduation parties right now, and you know the work that, that requires, the undertaking that requires to throw a graduation party for like 50 people. He's doing a party for over a thousand people. This is a big deal. He has all of his wives and concubines. That's many plural, right? And he's throwing this massive party. And during the party, he gets an idea while he's drunk. Now, we know that the best ideas don't always come to you when you're drunk, right? That's not what happens. And uh, he says, someone go get those golden vessels that we stole from the Jerusalem temple all those years ago. And now usually as people drink, they can get creative in what they're drinking out of, right? And uh, people would talk about, people share stories about, you know, your spring break, you'll see things like people drinking out of a funnel, drinking out of a traffic cone. They'll turn anything into a, something they can drink from. And so why does he drink from these temple vessels that were stolen from Jerusalem all those years ago. Well, it's really an act of defiance. It's an act of arrogance. It's like he's like, I'm going to go and steal these vessels that we got from the temple many, many years ago when we invaded Jerusalem, and we're going to use those to toast drink to our gods and show them who's really in charge. And so he does this as an act of defiance and arrogance against the God of, of the Israelites. But here's the the bigger question, why is, he, why is he throwing this party? 
Because something you may not know is that Cyrus, who was the Persian emperor, had already defeated the Babylonian army just a few days before this. And now the Persians are outside the city gate. So Babylon has, they have 20 years of food stored up in their city walls. They have these really thick city walls, a huge wall. And this party is Belshazzar's way of showing some confidence. He's saying to his people, listen, you can relax. Like, we're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. He's doing the very thing that you and I do when we face our mortality. He turns to pleasure. He wants to hide from the reality of death. And I think that you and I can, if we're going to find a touch point of how we can identify things in our own lives, you and I do this, don't we? Whenever we are faced with some really difficult things or a harsh reality, maybe it is something like death, maybe it is something less serious than that, but we usually turn to pleasure as a way to turn off the pain. Over the years being a youth pastor, I have seen that whenever, whenever there is family tragedy, whatever it might be, it could be a death in the family, it could be a divorce, it could be um, anything along those lines, um, I will tell you, you need to really guard yourself because that is when you will find a way to kill the pain. And I have seen students kind of go off the deep end into things when they've walked through some really hard things because they've just said, you know what, I, I can't tolerate this. I've got to find a way out. And that's kind of what's happening here is he wants to turn off his senses, turn off his emotions, and just have a little bit of fun because he knows the Persians are outside the city gate and they're about to invade and they're probably all going to die. And he knows that's coming. And so he wants to find a way to relax and give himself and the people confidence that everything's going to be okay in the end. And then we skip down to verse 5 where it says this, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." So this hand just appears, this vision out of nowhere. And this is not like the dreams of previous chapters, but this is a vision that's happening in real time in front of everyone can see this. This is not limited to just one person. Everyone can see what's happening. And this large human hand appears and begins writing on the wall. And in one second, all this confidence and all this bravado that he was displaying before this thousand of people getting drunk in front of a thousand people, all of that fades away. And the words that are used here, it says, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And what you don't understand is that you can't really pick up what that really means in the English, because when you go back to the original language, it basically means he went to the bathroom all over himself. That's what that means. And probably he had to change his pants. That's what that phrase means in the original language. Now, 
When you think about this significance of this hand appearing and writing on the wall, what normally goes on the wall of a palace? What's normally on the wall of someone's office or someone's house? Usually we have some pictures, of course, but usually there's like, we put things on the wall, for the most part, that remind us how great we are sometimes, right? We'll put certificates or achievements, and this has always been the case where kings and and people in royalty, they would put things on the wall or things that would commemorate themselves, and maybe it's a painting, maybe it's something else that just reminds them how great they are, and yet this is where God appears and says, I'm going to write on the wall, the place normally reserved for you to remember how great you are, and I'm going to give you a message on that wall. And so this is what God does. I'm going to summarize for you the next uh, several verses, because the king goes and calls for his wise men, but they can't interpret the writing. So then the queen, who is most likely the mother of Belshazzar, she goes in front of the king. And the queen mother shows up, and she reminds the king of this person named Daniel and how he, and how he once helped Nebuchadnezzar way back in the day. And if you look in your Bibles, I don't have it on the screen, look in your Bibles, at verse 11 of Daniel 5, she says this to the king. She says, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Now, when you pick up on those, those words, she still believes in all the idols of Babylon. It's not like she's placed her faith and trust in God, the only God of Israel. But she is using words and saying things like, look at the words she uses to describe Daniel. She says, in whom is the spirit of the holy God? She uses words like light and understanding and wisdom. And she says this in front of the king and says, you need to go talk to this guy, Daniel, because I remember Daniel and what he used to do for Nebuchadnezzar. And I think of just how she describes Daniel, the words that she uses to describe him. It's a great chance for us to look at ourselves and say, even if someone's not yet a believer, what words might they use to describe you and to describe me? Because it's, it's still possible for you to carry yourself in such a way in front of unbelievers that they have a, at least a respect for you. And there's something about you that, like, draws them to you. And that's kind of how it was with Daniel. This queen, she saw something in Daniel that she respected. And it's a reminder for us to carry ourselves in such a way, in front of unbelievers even, that we're approachable. We're someone they might seek out in a tough situation. Even if they don't know Christ yet, it might be a way for us to introduce to them the God that we worship and trust. We see here how Daniel, he didn't just survive in this place called Babylon, but he was someone who, um, he thrived in Babylon. He was someone that uh, really rose to the top and was someone that was respected by people in that culture. So Daniel is brought before the king, and the king asks for an interpretation. And before Daniel gives the interpretation of this vision, he recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar from many years ago. And he says, he reminds the king how God gave Nebuchadnezzar power because, but because of his pride, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And then he turns to Belshazzar and look down at Daniel 5, 22 to 23. 
And now Daniel, Daniel's now like an older man. He's been through a lot. Maybe he's kind of like a, a little bit grouchy. And he, he points his old man finger. It's probably a crooked finger like this. He points his old man finger at Belshazzar, and he says this to him. He says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this, meaning all the, that happened back with Nebuchadnezzar, you, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So Daniel turns to Belshazzar, and he says, he says, you knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but you didn't learn from it. You should have, what he's saying here, he's saying you should have seen the writing on the wall before you saw the writing on the wall. You should have seen all this coming your way. You, you knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. How could you not see this destruction coming your way based on how you've lived in front of the true God of Israel? So he says what you knew should have led to humility, but instead it led to pride. Skip down to verse 24 where it says, then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. And here's the words, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Now, what does that mean? Now, these words are simply just units of money that mean mina, mina, shekel, and a half. These are units of money back in that time. And again, it's not obvious why this is written on the wall, and so Daniel uses his interpretive powers, and in verses 26 to 28, it says this. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So if we put these words in verbal form, they would be numbered, weighed and divided. That's what they mean. So Daniel is having to interpret further here, and he says, your days are numbered. He says, you've been weighed and found wanting, and your kingdom's going to get divided. In other words, Belshazzar, the party is over in more ways than one. And so how would Belshazzar respond? Well, look down at verse 29. It says, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I'm always amazed at this scene, that Daniel has yelled at Belshazzar in this prophetic way, and he has told them, he's told him, you're going to be killed tonight. And, and then Belshazzar has the mindset, okay, I'm going to put a robe on you and give you a gold medallion around your neck and be a person of my word and give you the reward for giving me bad news. That's just a really weird scene to think about. Now, he does get killed that night, so that was quick. You know, at times prophecies can take a while, but this was fulfilled that very night. And uh, so again, at least Belshazzar keeps his word. This might be a last-ditch effort to save himself. We don't really know. If I do something good for him, maybe God will, will have mercy upon me. But let's go back to the interpretation of what Daniel says here. He says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, a balance was a device used in weighing payments. And if a payment did not meet the standard, then it was rejected. 
And this is, uh, so when you think of these words being said to Belshazzar, Daniel is saying, look, God has weighed out your life and you have been found wanting. But when you think about that statement as it relates to all of us, that's really true for all of us. That if you were to put our life on a scale and weigh it out, right, our accomplishments, our good deeds, our good efforts, all of us fall short, right, apart from Christ. So we see a glimmer here of the beginning of the gospel here in Daniel. That if, if you look at the story and you, and you might go, like, where's the hope in the story? Well, you, when you think of the whole Bible in its context, that Belshazzar, he falls short. You and I, we fall short. If you weigh out our life, I think even unbelievers have this, understand this idea that they might accomplish some great things, but there's just always something missing. There's always something missing apart from Christ. And so apart from Christ, all of us have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And even those that they don't know Christ yet, I think, can still make sense of this idea. So what do we do with this story? Because when you compare Daniel chapter 4, there are some things that are similar and some things that are very different. Because if you go back to last week when Chris taught Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he gets, he gets prideful, he gets confronted, he gets warned, he gets sent off to the wilderness for seven years, and he seems to repent. I agree with Chris, we don't really know if he was truly or not. But God seems very patient with Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar gets prideful, and God says, that's it, you're dead, and it's happening tonight. So why? Why the difference between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar? I'll quote Chris from last week, I don't know. But it reminds me of Paul's words in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, sometimes God gives people a lot of time to repent, but sometimes he doesn't. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, you're, you guys are young, fairly, and maybe you're not following Christ yet. You think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to have all the fun. I'm going to do all the things. And I might get to that later on. Listen, right now, you're experiencing his kindness. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness is meant to bring you to repentance. His kindness should lead us to repentance. And listen, I can't speak to this, but just like Belshazzar, maybe his kindness runs out tonight. We don't know. We don't know. I love these words by Sinclair Ferguson. He says, to know that God is gracious and yet not turn from sin in the light of that grace is to fall under his righteous judgment. You and I cannot presume on the grace and mercy of God. We are not entitled to it. He doesn't owe it to us. So the encouragement for all of us is wherever you stand with God, it's, it's time to repent. It's time to turn to him. If you don't yet know him, it's time to repent and to let his kindness and his grace and mercy bring you to himself. And so with that, we want to go ahead and head to our breakouts um, here in a moment. So if you're